Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. If you are a faithful listener, you know that we are in the last chapter of the last book in the Bible. So this is exciting stuff, huh? I mean, every verse in all of sacred scripture ought to be exciting stuff, but I just cannot help but get even more excited as we continue our treatment of the book of Revelation. I mean, not only are we in the last chapter, but also really this is going to be our last week in the book of Revelation. And saying that, I just want to continue to reach out to you. I have some more ideas about what I want to talk about starting next week as far as new subject matter goes. If you have any ideas, I do want to respond to just not your inquiries and questions, but also your suggestions. If there are specific things that we have not yet talked about over the last few years here on Seeds of Truth, please shoot me an email at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at uh, joeholcraft.org. Just hit the contact tab or link there and send your suggestion on its way. It really is important to me, and it's important to me not only to be able to respond to your questions and, and your suggestions, but in doing so, to really meet you where you're at. And uh, the only way I can do that best is by really listening to you and responding to your suggestions. So please do send those uh, to me, and I will do my best. And if that means mixing up my subject matter like I have in the past, great, I'll do that. Or if it means just doing what we've been doing over the last four and a half months by focusing on one book, I'll do that. Um, We have touched upon so many different topics, but hey, (laughs) it's the Catholic Church, and there's lots to talk about. So again shoot that email on its way. And if you come from outside of the United States, your suggestion is as important as any other suggestion. I mean, if you live in Brazil, Argentina, Chile, Ecuador, uh, Paraguay, France, Italy, Croatia, England, Ireland, I see you on the grid. I see you listening to the podcast. It's humbling. It's exciting. You too, please send your questions to me. It is very important that you do so. Okay, that being said, speaking of questions, I did get another question in relationship to what we've been talking about, and it's that phrase coming soon. I've talked about it on a number of occasions, but because it is one of our verses today, I thought I would just encourage you to pay close attention to what I'm going to talk about today, because really, your question about what is the meaning of coming soon will be answered in our verses, because We are in chapter 22, the last chapter, and we are in verse 6. Okay, so if you have your Bibles out there, and if you want to turn to chapter 22, and I will go ahead and read verses 6 to 7. Again, this is Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 to 7. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants with what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
Okay, so off the top, we have to first say that verses 6 to 21, in so many ways, and you see this when you go into the commentaries, serve as the concluding message, not only to the vision of chapters found in chapters 21 and 22, but really to the book as a whole, huh? to the book as a whole. And now these words, as I've already hinted at, very much closely mirror the introduction to Revelation itself. Uh, what did we read in the opening verses? If you were to flip back to chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and I'll just go ahead and read verse 1 here. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place. Well, what did I just read in verse 6, 22 verse 6? The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. How about verse 3? Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and who keep what is written therein. How about verse 7? Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Chapter 1, verse 3, we also read, for the time is near. We're not at verse 10 yet, but we also read in verse 10, for the time is near. In this, we can appreciate how the beginning and the end of the book are very much neatly tied together. The reader is assured that the contents of the apocalypse are what? Trustworthy and true. How important are those words? You know, we talk about truth within the context of dynamic orthodoxy, but we must always appreciate the virtue of truthfulness for what it is. <laughs> that foundational virtue for seeing something for what it is versus what it is not, okay? And by that, I mean, we just can't arbitrarily define something if it is not that thing, okay? I'm looking at a table that is gray. I can't say the table is black because it's gray, right? The true statement is the table is gray. Brothers and sisters, divine revelation, the book of revelation, the visions of John are trustworthy and true. They happened. Why? Because it comes from the God of the spirits of the prophets. On one hand, we could say that this refers to the prophetic spirits of the prophets, huh? If you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 32, where we hear and read of the prophetic spirits of the prophets. However, the spirit of the prophets is also what? But the Holy Spirit, the sevenfold spirit who inspired the prophets. What's interesting here is what we're talking about now is also echoed in an Old Testament prophet. Guess who? Daniel, right? Maybe the one prophet, if not Isaiah, who we have drawn from the most. If you were to go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 45, what do we read? A great God has made known to the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. How about Revelation chapter 22, verse 6? What did we just read? These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord has sent his angel to show what must soon take place. Now, the overall context of Daniel 2 is itself similar to Revelation 22, huh? since both describe the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom. The trustworthiness of John's prophecy is bound up with what? But with the warning that Christ is coming soon. We have talked about this, and here we are again at that question. What is the meaning of this question? 
we know that this cannot simply be the end of time. It is imminent. He is just around the corner. His coming is as near to the church as the next Eucharistic celebration. Furthermore, for John's audience of the late 60s, he is coming soon in the judgment of 70 AD. Remember that the coming soon is derived from the Greek, the parousia, which also means appearance, invitation. And do we not see that par excellence in the Eucharist? If I have said it once, if I've said it twice, if I've said it three times, and if you've not understood, let's say it a fourth time. When Jesus Christ says, this is the blood of the New Testament, what is he saying? I am coming soon in the Eucharist, which is the New Testament. I mean, if we are hearing this for the first time, let us take a step back and think about the significance of what Jesus did in the upper room and its correlation to this verse. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. Take this, the blood of the new covenant, and drink from it, and you will have eternal life. These are words certainly that we hear in John 6. This is why, my friends, when you heard the phrase New Testament in the first 300 years of the Christian church, it was never tied to the New Testament as we understand it today, the book. No, the canon of the New Testament didn't come to us until the end of the fourth century. The New Testament was what Jesus said it was, the Eucharist, right? The New Testament transforms. What transforms more than anything else? Certainly the Word of God transforms, but the Word of God incarnate in the Eucharist. This is what transforms. This is the blood of the New Testament. And in this blood, I am coming to you soon, very soon. And so the temple of the Old Testament is destroyed to make room for what? The new temple, the new church, which is sacramental sacramental because we are made to draw from the strength and grace of God. And we do that in no better way than by receiving the Eucharist. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 6. So important. Okay, how about verses 8 to 9? I, John, am he who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. <laughs> I love that. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Worship God, the angel says. I, I mean, these verses, if nothing else, should get our attention, huh? In these verses, we see that John establishes himself as a what? A witness. One who has seen and heard the visions presented. In so doing, John is saying these visions are true. John is saying, trust me, I've seen them and I'm not lying. By making such testimony, John is putting himself under oath. Is he not? Guaranteeing its truth. And be rest assured, my friends, this was very, very important. In the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 14, verse 24, when we read Jesus say, this is the blood of the New Testament, it also translates as this is the blood of the New Covenant. Why do I talk about this now? Well, how do you make a covenant? You swear an oath. You bind yourself. John wouldn't dare lie under oath. That is one of the worst kinds of sin. 
and as in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, John is rebuked for falling down in worship at the feet of an angel, huh? <laughs> Only God is worthy of adoration. This reminds John that he is simply a, what did we read? A fellow servant. And in this phrase, my friends, we are made to see how God raises up those who follow him to the level of the angels so that they worship and serve him alongside of the angelic host. What a powerful, powerful image. Now, there's an interesting point to be had as we talk about man and angels, because St. Thomas Aquinas says that angels are actually envious of man. What do you mean angels are envious of man? How could they possibly be envious of man? Well, angels know the power of offering up pain, suffering. They know its effect. They can't do it because they're pure spirit, right? But man in his flesh, when he conforms his pain, his suffering, his trial with Christ on the cross, there is redemptive power in it. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13, rejoice in your sufferings. This is why Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, we make up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the church. He's not saying that there's actually something within the sufferings of Christ that was lacking in as much as there's always still something to be made up in time insofar as we are called to conform our sufferings to Christ. On a number of other occasions, Paul calls us to offer up pain and suffering, and we do so in our flesh. This is why St. Thomas Aquinas says what he says. There's great power in offering up all of our little annoyances that each and every moment, even if it be an annoyance, can become a sacramental moment if it is offered to God. Paul says in Romans 12 verses 1 to 3, such things are to be our spiritual worship our holy and acceptable offering to God. How about that? Amen. Now, I want to stay with these verses a little bit and reflect upon something that I've been meaning to do for a while now. This language of falling down, prostrating oneself, worshiping God. We've touched upon it as it relates to the adoration of the Magi, right? They arrive at the cave, the manger, and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. One of my favorite verses there in the Gospel of Matthew. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This explosive, not passive, explosive joy. Evangelical joy. And what do they do? Fall down because they're so tired? No. Fall down before the infant king, worshiping the one true God. But there's another place where we see prostration. There's another place where we see falling down. And where is that? But in the transfiguration, right? I want to go to the Gospel of Matthew, and we won't read the whole transfiguration account. But consider this verse, and remember, Peter, James, and John are the ones that followed Jesus up Mount Tabor. And when they arrived upon seeing the glow and the light and Jesus transfigured, they fell on their faces and they were exceedingly afraid. Isn't that interesting? Did we not just talk about how the Magi arrived at the cave, arrived at the manger, and they arrived with great joy? What was the verse? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That word exceedingly in the Greek, it is a way of really emphasizing something, right? And in the Greek, it's quite demonstrative. 
we can get a sense of it in the English, but in the Greek, it's much stronger. And here, Peter, James, and John fell on their faces and were exceedingly afraid. The light emanating from the whole person of Jesus, which is the uncreated light of divinity filtered through the human bone and flesh and clothing. It is the great light on Mount Tabor. Its only source is who but God himself, my friends, and no created son. Otherwise, it would not have had the overwhelming results that we read of, right? Jesus' humanity is now manifested as the created source and locus of all uncreated light. Why are we talking about this? Because, well, what have we talked about as it relates to light? We no longer need the sun or moon. The book of Revelation reminds us why. Because now there's a new light source. And that light source is Jesus Christ. And what of this light? My friends, the reality of this light is the light that beams forth from Jesus. The light that is the unsurpassable sign that in him God and man have truly been reconciled. That there exists on earth a holy, sinless human nature that already is the perfect house of divinity. And this divine light and life Jesus does not keep for himself. This is what we are made to see. What do we read? He led them up high, a mountain apart, and he was transfigured before them. It was for this, my friends, that Jesus came to earth, to beam forth the transforming and life-giving rays of divinity, to communicate the light of God dwelling within him, to act as the sun, S-U-N, whose energy shines forth selflessly, incessantly, we could say, and inexhaustibly for the life of all, each and every one of us. This is why he came. What do we read in Psalm chapter 103, verse 2? Thou coverest thyself with light as with a garment. Colossians 3.10 reads that we are called to put on the cloth of Christ, the garment of virtue, my friends, the garment of light, the garment of light. What is this fear, this being afraid? Well, the great fear and prostration of the disciples at beholding our Lord's splendor, Jesus' splendor, and hearing the Father's voice may surprise us. Maybe because we're more accustomed to speaking to and and about God with an ease and and matter-of-factness that betray either, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, profound ignorance or fundamental insolence in the face of God's holiness and transcendence. Peter, James, and John, my friends, here know that the holy God has come close to them, and therefore they instinctively react like wax, melting before the approach of living fire. This is how we are called to be humble before God. This is why pride is so cataclysmic in the spiritual life. It doesn't see the need to be humble before God. Brothers and sisters, if there is anything you are to take from this radio program this evening, it is be humble before God. Be humble before the name of Jesus Christ. Don't curse these names. Don't dare curse these names. You do not know what you were doing when you curse these names, but fall on your face before God. Be humble before God. 
Be grateful for all that God has done for you, even if you are mired in a horrible situation. Be grateful for the little things that have been given to you. And I assure you, my friends, I assure you, my friends, that no matter what you are going through, there's something within it to be grateful for if it is only your waking breath, that you might be able to breathe life in a place of death, breathe something new in a place of desolation. Certainly of James and John, their humility shows the depth of their spiritual awareness, awareness both of who they are and who God is, right? I've always said, as it relates to the virtue of humility, the virtue of humility is nothing more than understanding who you are in relationship to God. You don't waste time protecting the false self, right? Because you haven't busied yourself protecting yourself. You are who you are, and a life of humility understands that. What are those timeless words of St. John Paul II? That an excuse is worse than a lie because it is the lie guarded? The humble person has no excuse. He is who he is, and nothing more. But by being who he is... And allowing himself to be caught up in the divine light, he gives what? Glory to God. To talk about prostration, to talk about God's glory, and the light of the transfiguration, and then in the light of certainly chapter 22, verses 8 to 9. How can we not talk about Moses? <laughs> you know, pious Jews that they were, the disciples must have instantly recalled there on the mountain. The story of Moses' experience after he had been admitted to divine intimacy, right? I mean, go back. If you have your Bibles out there, go back to Exodus chapter 34. And I will just read some verses for you. This is verses 29 to 30 and verses 33 to 35. Listen to these words. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And when Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were, listen to this, afraid to come near him. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses would put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. Mm, obviously, <laughs> the, the crucial difference in this comparison between Jesus and Moses is the fact that unlike Moses, Jesus does not mediate between God and man by shuttling back and forth between them, bearing messages and responses. Why do we read this now? Because my friends, he was before the presence of God and his face shone like the brilliant light was too much for the people to see. And is this some fairy tale? I mean, really, Joe, some of you are probably asking, did that really happen? Well, yes, because the word of God is trustworthy and true. Huh? How can one not think of 2 Peter 1 verses 3 to 4 here? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Mm, mm, mm. My friends, for Peter, it is not primarily any teaching that Peter remembers as foundation of faith, but rather his personal vision of the glorified Jesus in splendor on Tabor. The mystery of the transfiguration is at the privileged moment when the Father seduces our hearts through the beauty of His Son. And this is what Peter wants us to see. We go there because ultimately what we are made to see is that our own faces shine like the sun when we allow ourselves to be seduced by God's love, ravished by God's love. What have I said before? Is not the spiritual life nothing more than our desire for God matching God's desire for us? Well, we know that that's perfect from God to us, and so we're going to spend our whole lifetime closing that gap. But that's the nature of the spiritual life, coming to understand that the more we find ourselves wrapped in God's love, the more we will become the person that God is calling us to be. There's always a gap between the person we are and the person we are called to be. So we close that gap. And we close that gap by allowing ourselves to be enfolded in the beauty and the rays of the Son of God. Amen? Amen. Okay, I'm looking down in the clock and we are out of time. I know we have hit it pretty hard this evening, huh? <laughs> we just kind of jumped into the verses and really got into the meat and the potatoes of these verses, if you will. I really want to continue to ask you out there to send me your questions, your comments, your observations, your suggestions about where we've been at, where we are, and, and where we're going. I really want to serve you, and uh, certainly the Seeds of Truth Radio as a whole will be better suited for it. So please don't hesitate to, to send me any suggestions that you may have. All right, let's just close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another radio program the gift of another evening to engage the richness and splendor of your word that pierces through the darkness because of its light, because of its power, its power to transform, its power to change, its power to take something that is so desolate and so barren and bring about something new, something fresh, something life-giving. As always, we Pray to the intercession of Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.